Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. The Approach to God, the Slave, the Servant, and the Son We often hear atheists make a claim that we Christians only believe in God and religion because of fear. I have had many discussions with atheists over the years, and every one of them who raised this criticism each attributed the belief in religion to a different type of fear. For example, some attribute the belief in religion as due to a fear of death, Others attribute it to other fears. To illustrate, when I was in university, I remember I was having a discussion one time with a lady who sat behind me in a general education world history class. She was agnostic, which means that she believed that she did not have enough knowledge to arrive at a conclusion about whether God exists. The professor of the class was an aggressively anti-Christian atheist. My classmate knew that I was a Christian, but she saw the professor had been bashing religion in general and Christianity in specific, from the first day of class, even though the class started by looking at prehistoric times and a discussion of Christianity was out of place there. One day, during our middle of the class break, my classmate and I were discussing religious belief, and she wondered, in the way of thinking of a historian, why people came to have religious belief. So she suggested we ask the professor. She raised her hand and caught him over, When he came over and she asked why people came to have religious belief, he answered, Because people want to be able to go to sleep at night. What was implicit in his answer is that people begin to believe because they are afraid of the dark. It was actually the first time I heard this critique of religion. Up until that time, the criticism I had heard was that people believe because they are afraid of death. Yet, fear of the dark does not explain why most people come to believe. I readily think of St. Moses the Black when I consider whether this critique is true. St. Moses the Black was the leader of a group of bandits in Egypt. Theft, violence, murder, and drunkenness were his way of life. These are activities that take place at night especially among desert bandits. This was a man who was not afraid of the dark, nor of death, nor of consequences. Yet this was a man whose heart yearned to know God. He would often look to the sun which he had heard was God from his own land, and ask it to let him know if it were God, and if not, then for God to let him know who he was. Then he heard someone saying that the monks of the desert of Skidus in Egypt knew who God was. His wandering took him to the monastic communities of Skidus in the Egyptian desert. He came seeking God, and they provided him with answers. He became a Christian, renounced his old ways, and became a monk. This is a man who came to believe because of his search for meaning, for God, and for his own place in the world, and how he should live his own life in the light of who God is. Fear had no place in his coming to believe in God and his becoming a Christian. Indeed, most of those who lived as monks in the deserts did not believe because of fear. Otherwise, 
they would not have gone out into the desert with all the dangers found there. These are people who were fearless. But we still have the criticism that people believe because they are afraid to die. Yet, we have the countless examples of martyrs in the early church. But I want to direct your attention to something else. Up until the Edict of Milan, it was well understood that if one became a Christian, then persecution was certain, and death was a very likely end for you. With this, many people still came to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. If fear of death was their motivation to believe, then wouldn't other religions be a better fit for them? Yet during all this time, the fastest growing religion and philosophy was Christianity. No other religion or philosophy came close. Why? It has to do with the truth value of the claims that Christianity makes, as well as its revelation about humanity and God. People came to believe because they were convinced of the reality of the claims of Christianity. And for this, they were willing to lay down their lives for it. Yet again, I have heard a criticism that people believe in God because they are afraid of going to hell, and they want to go to the good place, or what we know as heaven. Moses the prophet and the apostle Paul show that this is certainly not their reason for belief. Moses the prophet went up to God after the children of Israel sinned by making a calf from gold and worshipping it. Moses said to God, Oh, these people committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now there, go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishments upon them for their sin. Exodus chapter 32 verses 31 through 34. It is clear that this is not a man who feared death, even eternal hell, but one who was motivated for other reasons, which primarily was the love for the people whom God entrusted to him. Yet he still believed in God. Why? Because he also knew of God's love. The Apostle Paul also, in his epistle to the Romans, writes, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Romans 9, verses 1-5 through 5. Again, in much sharper language, the Apostle Paul shows the same disposition toward his own people. His belief, like Moses, is related to much deeper convictions. Heaven and hell as rewards and punishments do not even factor in that belief. Rather, it was their conviction of the character and love of God that led them to speak like this. For them, heaven and hell are merely names for states of being that will be fulfilled at the end of all things. This state of being begins here 
when we approach God in love as the one who is love, we are drawn to him as he has come near to us. This is the highest motivation for one to believe, because our souls will yearn to ascend to be with and behold God. But more on that a little later. So then what about the three types of fears that atheists and probably many believers think cause people to believe in religion? Fear of the dark, fear of death, and fear of hell. Where did atheists come up with these critiques? As we saw, these do not explain why many people come to believe. I think they have actually come up with these critiques from the sermons and writings of Christianity. The early church herself identified all three fears as motivations for faith and looked down on those who were solely motivated to believe because of fear. In this case, they identified the criticism long before any non-Christian did, and in doing so, they identified three motivations for faith. Each one of these motivations represented an approach to God. These three approaches were called the slave, the servant, and the son. Their aim was that we should approach God as son, but what that means is much higher than what you may think by the term. In this, the early church showed a higher motivation for belief, one motivated by much better and more solid reasons than fear. But let's start with the lowest motivation for faith, which the early church described as the motivation of the slave. Those who are motivated by fear were characterized as slaves in their approach to God. These people do things specifically out of fear of and wanting to avoid punishment. The church father Origen in his seventh homily on Genesis said, Spiritually, therefore all indeed who come to the recognition of God through faith can be called sons of Abraham. But among these, some cling to God on the basis of love, others on the basis of dread and fear of future judgment. Whence also the apostle John says, He who fears is not perfected in love, but perfect love casts out fear. He therefore who is perfected in love is both born of Abraham and is a son of the free woman. But he who keeps the commandments not in perfect love, but in dread of future torment and in fear of punishments, is indeed also himself a son of Abraham. He too receives gifts, that is the reward of his work, because even he who shall give a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, shall not lose his reward. Nevertheless, he is inferior to that person who is perfected not in slavish fear, but in the freedom of love. As Origen points out, it is in the nature of love for love to be free, meaning that if we love someone, there is no constraint on us except to be with that person. When we love, we love freely. We are not constrained by anything, but we find in ourselves a desire to seek that which is good and beautiful. Our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of the mentality of the slave and said, A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. John chapter 8, verses 35 through 36. This motivation of the slave mentality was also perceived to be childish. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This leads us to consider that children are usually motivated only to avoid punishments. They do not know why something is good as good. They don't understand the qualities of goodness clearly. This is why children struggle to behave, which is why they have to be kept under guardians, and why parents often become exhausted raising them. But when they grow up a little, they begin to do things for different motivations. This brings us to the second motivation for approaching God which was described as the motivation of the servant. Those who are motivated by a reward were characterized as servants in their approach to God. It is a higher degree, or if you will, a refinement in the mentality of the slave, where the motivation moves from avoiding punishment to seeking reward. To get an understanding of this, let's consider when children get a little older. They do things for a reward. It is the mentality of what's in it for me. They still can't understand the nature of goodness in the things they do, but they begin to perceive its nature in other things they want, such as candy, or money, or games. Yet they can't put their finger on goodness in the things themselves, but rather how they help them get things that they want. But to be fair to those Christians who have this motivation, consider the fact that most people who work in any type of job do it out of the servant's motivation. That is, they don't do the work for the goodness of the work itself, but they do it for a reward, which is to satisfy themselves, such as receiving a high paycheck, or getting prestige, or because all their friends have gone into this profession. This way of approaching God is higher than the mentality of the slave, but it was also seen as less than desirable in the mind of the early church. Our Lord Jesus, when he spoke with the apostles the night of his arrest, told them, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. John chapter 15 verse 5. He then tells them, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. John chapter 15 verses 12 through 15. Our Lord Jesus moves them to a higher mentality from the mentality of the servant, which only seeks to serve for reward, but without an understanding of what is going on, to an understanding of how we should approach God for his own goodness. 
This brings us to the last motivation of faith, which is the mentality of the Son. Those who are motivated by love are characterized by the designation of Son in their approach to God. In the first epistle of John, the Apostle John writes, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. 1 John 4, verses 16-20 through 20. Here is the clear rebuke of those who are motivated purely by fear. It is simply not the way of Christianity to fear, because those who fear cannot recognize the goodness in the things themselves. For example, those who hate others are not able to see the inherent goodness with which God created them. So how can they love God who is the source of all goodness? So at the end, how does the mind of the early church compare to the criticisms atheists level against us, that we believe due to fear either of the dark, or of death, or of hell? The reality is, in most of the New Testament, and in the writings of the early church, these fears cannot be seen as having any type of influence on Christian belief. Rather, it is the truth the goodness and the beauty of God that moves people to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. If I may give an image to explain what it is that moves us to believe in our Lord, it is like this. Imagine it is at the time of the golden hour in the late afternoon when the light is clear and golden. You are walking down a hallway in a building and there are blinds that are slightly open, really almost closed. Then as you are walking, you barely glimpse between the almost closed blinds a wash of colors in the sky, clouds, and sunlight. What are you going to do? Most of us will stop, then we'll walk toward the blinds and open them up and stand there and gaze at the beauty of the scene. This is not done out of fear, nor out of wanting a reward that this sight leads us to, but it is done out of wanting to behold the beauty of the thing itself. There are many people who approach God in a similar fashion. They approach him because of his beauty and his goodness. St. Macrina explains this beauty and goodness when she tells her brother St. Gregory of Nyssa in his book On the Soul and the Resurrection. The divine apostle introduced us to this doctrine also when he predicted a cessation and conclusion of all our eager efforts, even those which are directed toward the good. But of love only he did not find a limit, for he says prophecies will pass away, and knowledge will pass away, but love never ends, which is equivalent to being always the same. But when he says that faith and hope remain along with love, again he rightly puts love ahead of the others, for hope acts so long as the enjoyment of what is hoped for is not present and faith in the same way becomes a support for the uncertainty of the things hoped for. This is how he defined it when he said, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But when the thing hoped for comes, all the others grow quiet while the operation of love remains.
not finding anything to take its place. For this reason also, it has the primacy among all virtuous actions, as well as among the commandments of the law. So if the soul should ever reach this goal, it will have no need of the others, as it embraces the fullness of existing things, and seems somehow alone to preserve in itself the impression of divine blessedness. For the life of the superior nature is love, since the beautiful is in every respect lovable for those who know it, and the divine knows itself. But knowledge becomes love because that which is known is beautiful by nature, insolent satiety does not touch the truly beautiful, since satiety does not cut off the attachment of love to the beautiful. The divine life will always operate through love. The divine life which is beautiful by nature, and from its nature is lovingly disposed toward the beautiful. There is no limit to the operation of love, since the beautiful has no limit. From the end of chapter 6 of On the Soul and the Resurrection. So the early Christians did not come to believe due to a fear of the dark, but rather because they saw the light and were moved to follow that light to its beautiful source. The early Christians also did not come to believe because of fear of death, but because they had a desire to life that is fulfilled in the goodness of God. The early Christians also did not even come to believe because of the fear of hell, but because they knew what it was like to experience the love of God here and now, and what they had in store as it kept developing over the course of their lives and even into eternity. These were the real motivations of the early Christian church. These were the lasting motivations. So how do we live in this fashion? It requires work. I remember a few years ago I met a young Orthodox Christian woman who said that she was afraid of reading in the Bible because she did not want to consciously know how many commandments she was already breaking, since it was so difficult to keep what she already knew. She was motivated by fear, which in many cases like that described by Origen earlier, is an approach to God and faith, but one that is not the most desirable. But to highlight from the young woman's comments, it may seem difficult to rise to such a level which we just described of approaching God because of his beauty and goodness and for himself alone, but it is certainly doable. The first step is to find a church where both the pastors and the congregation communicate the love and beauty of God. By being around these people, and by receiving from their experiences, you will come to experience the love and beauty of God yourself. You must be surrounded by Christians of this sort. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to start a church, not a faith for individuals living in their homes alone, but a community of believers. This is one of the clear reasons for why he did so. Let me continue with the analogy of the beautiful sunset I mentioned earlier. I know many people who move to cities that are on the coast so they can go to the beach every day and see its beauty. Yet what ends up happening is that these people get so busy that they don't have time to go to the beach at all. I kid you not. One of my good friends used to live in San Diego. Afterward, he moved to Central California. He told me that since he has moved to Central California, he has gone to the beach in San Diego more than he ever did before. The same is true with you. It requires intention on your part to find a church where you will grow. The second step is to reflect on God's work in the world, in the scriptures, and in your life. This will be done through the rereading of the scriptures, 
and looking for the beauty of God. But as a background activity, begin by sitting in a beautiful place. Then take a walk. Look at the skies above you, to the blades of grass beneath you. Feel the breeze on your face, through your hair, and on your clothes. At night, go take a look at the stars outside. This is how we begin to see God's beauty in nature. Nature, after all, is the first way we come to perceive God. Without this background, we cannot make much sense of the scriptures. Then after you have done this, read and reread the scriptures. Reflect on them. Look at the Bible as a whole and how God had a plan to save us from the very beginning, first by watching over us, and finally through becoming one of us and sharing our life, including our suffering, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the work and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by this became the face of the faceless, and our model for life, and how we have meaning in our own lives by living according to His life and teachings. Also, read the New Testament and how the apostles reflected on and expanded upon the meaning of His life, death, and resurrection. This is the best way you will be drawn toward the beauty of God, and approach him as a son through love. And do all these things with the guidance of a father confessor, especially one who you know will be able to guide based on what you have seen with his spiritual children and in his sermons. The approach to God as a son through love is a way of life, and it is not meant to be traveled alone, but traveled as a church together. We have people who came before us, who know this road and can guide us on it. We need to become disciples to them as our Lord and his apostles showed us at the very beginning, by making disciples themselves. This way we all will reach the end together. There is also another application in this understanding of the three motivations for approaching God. One has to do with pastoral and teaching ministries. For those of us who are priests, or who teach the young in our churches, it should also be noted that if we don't develop the youth's understanding and raise them to a higher level of motivation for approaching God, then those whose mentalities never go beyond the slave phase will be the ones who abandon Christianity when they grow up. So we should aim for continual growth and transformation, both for ourselves and for the youth. I mean, the youth will learn more from our way of life and our own reflection than from any lesson we prepare. St. Basil suggests the same in his book on the Holy Spirit, when he describes the role of a good teacher of the faith in the following. It is the mark of an infantile mind and of a child who truly needs milk to be ignorant of the great mystery of our salvation, that according to the elementary manner of teaching, we were introduced to training for perfection and piety and were instructed in knowledge first in matters easy to grasp and proportionate to us. He who directed us, as if we were eyes kept in darkness, led us up to the great light of truth, accustoming us to it little by little. For by the sparing of our weakness, in the depth of the riches of his wisdom, and in the unsearchable judgments of his intelligence, he showed a guidance gentle and accommodating to us. He first trained us to see the shadows of bodies and to look at the sun and the water, so that we not be blinded by wrecking ourselves on the vision of pure light. From section 14 of On the Holy Spirit. 
Now, what is interesting in all this teaching on the motivations for approaching God is that the early church discovered something about the human psyche that only the West systematically uncovered and studied in the early 20th through the mid-20th century. This discovery came through the psychologist Jean Piaget in his research on the development of human reasoning. He identified three broad stages which can be divided into further substages of how the human being develops their thinking. The next step came through the psychologist Lawrence Kohlberg, who applied Piaget's findings to the development of moral reasoning. The first stage Jean Piaget identified is the pre-operational stage, which ranges from ages 2 to 7. Piaget determined that the individual in this age range is egocentric, focusing only on their own interests, has difficulty taking the viewpoint of others, and can engage in thinking symbolically but to a limited degree, such as in using language and figures where one word or object stands for another word or object, and they can engage in concrete thinking, which is thinking about specific material objects. Kohlberg, using this framework for his own research, found that due to these characteristics, humans from ages 2 to 7 understand morality in terms of obedience and punishment, that is, in a concrete and egocentric manner. Then later on in this stage, moral understanding shifts to seeking rewards for oneself. He called this stage pre-conventional. As you can see, this is the mentality and motivation of the slave. The second stage Piaget identified in the development of human reasoning was the concrete operational stage. This ranges from ages 7 to 11. Children at this age can count numbers in a series even doing things like counting by twos, threes, and fives. They can count backward. But most importantly, they can work things out in their heads rather than trying to physically manipulate objects. It is a transitionary stage from dealing with the world of concrete things directly to being able to think abstractly. Kohlberg found that because of this change of reasoning in children, it leads to children's moral understanding to move from seeking rewards to understanding morality in terms of their relationships with others. Yet their understanding of morality is legalistic. He called this stage conventional. This lines up with the mentality and motivation of the servant, where as we saw the servant can begin to perceive the nature of goodness, but not quite in the thing itself, but in other things. As we saw, this was a turning point from not understanding the nature of goodness, because everything was done to avoid punishment, where everything was self-centered, to now perceiving something of goodness in the things we want, that is, objects, instead of in people or in the activities themselves. The third stage Piaget identified was what he called the formal operational stage. This ranges from around age 11 all the way into adulthood. It is at this stage that humans begin thinking abstractly. This includes being able to empathize with others because empathy requires abstract thinking. Kohlberg found that due to these changes in reasoning, moral understanding of humans changes to become focused on social contract and transcendent moral principles. People no longer do things due to a fear of punishment, wanting a reward, or even for any rule, but because of principle. He called this stage post-conventional. This lines up with the mentality and motivation of the sun, where we saw that the sun does things out of love and being drawn to the beauty and goodness of God 
there is now a perception of goodness in God himself and in others too. This engagement of the early church's teaching with modern psychology also has an application for evangelism. Since we see that adults in general are in the post-conventional stage of moral reasoning and how this is based on abstract thinking, we must consider something about the motivation of the Son in approaching God, which is love. Love incorporates rational thinking, reflection, and reciprocation. Love is always a two-way road. To continue preaching the faith in a way that appeals to fear can never reach out to those who are rational, reflective, and want reciprocation. And this is by design. If we want to continue making disciples of all nations, as our Lord Jesus commanded us, then we need to be able to communicate the love, goodness, and beauty of God. And if we find that we are having difficulty with communicating that, then we need to start by working on ourselves. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.